Whoa, 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 whoa. Welcome back to Joker Men. Last episode was long. And uh, thank you for sticking with it. Um, here we are. We're back. Uh, we're back on blood on the tracks. We're up to our necks in blood. And uh, the vagaries of a failed relationship, relationships, are they happening? Are they not? Is it all a dream? Uh, we'll find out by the end of this episode. But here we are with side B and the first track, Meet Me in the Morning. A song which began as a wholly different song. Did it? It did. It was originally called Call Letter Blues. And uh, this is a song which Dylan actually went back, found a track that was uh, acceptable enough, and um, redubbed all of the vocals on to transform it into what we now know as Meet Me in the Morning. But I think Call Letter Blues is maybe a more interesting song, lyrically. Um, So that's kind of like an interesting choice on his part. Uh, It features that line about um, the kids crying for their mother, and he says she's on a trip, which, uh, according to Dylan in a later interview, he said, well, I thought people would think that that was about my marriage. So I didn't include it. Um, nice save, man. <laughs> very, very crafty. Um, I guess one, one thing that we didn't touch on last episode, which um, might be interesting to discuss, is that of all of the songs on this record, just re- 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 reeling back a little bit, um, Idiot Wind uh, actually was like the only one that went through like massive changes um it actually went through like at least three distinct different wholesale uh ground up different versions um lyrics music everything um just a interesting thing to ponder um Hmm. but uh now that now now that's in the past and uh although on this record the past and present are constantly fluctuating you don't know where you're at it's a time warp relationship novella um, based on based allegedly on the works of Anton Chekhov uh-huh sure mom sure my life is also based on the works of Anton Chekhov by the way <laughs> um, and uh, so w- what do you think of meet me in the morning I feel like this is like kind of the most regular song on the record right yeah this this is i mean i i hesitate to say anything on blood on the tracks is inconsequential uh, but if we were going to call anything on blood on the tracks inconsequential this i think i think this would be this would be it for me it's got you know it, it just a very classic kind of blues chord progression uh and bob is just kind of um you know, kind of, kind of going on about um, uh, trying to get together with somebody. Um, you know, it's not, um, it's not woogie boogie necessarily, um, but it uh, it doesn't it doesn't pack the same punch as what we saw on the first side, and and you know, which is fine. You know, it's the first song on the second side, 
we're transitioning into a different kind of vibe here towards the back half of the record. It's a palate um, cleanser, yeah. Yeah, palate cleanser, yeah, exactly. Which is uh, maybe I'm, why Dylan chose to change the lyrics, make it into a different song, because uh, Call Letter Blues, it just mires you deeper into that, like, weird paranoia space of wondering what's autobiographical, what's not. And it, yeah, I mean, it, I do, I, I do buy that. Like maybe just art as from an artistic point of view, he felt that this needed to be, um, a change of pace from that tact, uh, lyrically. So what you have is something that's a little bit, uh, adjacent to the, to those heavier themes. It's not quite, um, burrowing further it's it's just kind of a a regular song yeah it's the one it's the one song on the record i think that would not not appear out of place on self-portrait for instance um uh, mm-hmm. if it if it appeared on self-portrait it would sound different there would be a different uh it would sound shittier uh <laughs> for one thing um but um it, lyrically you know it's it's the same it's the same kind of thing as, uh, or you know, in the same vein as Alberta or or something like that. You know, there's not there's not the same level of personal um, uh, angst and grief and and um, excavation going on here um, that we have elsewhere. Um, played played once live in 2007. So clearly, Bob also feels that this is not one of his, you know, most uh, essential tracks, I would say. Wow. Once live in 2007. Yep. In September 19th, 2007 in Nashville, Tennessee, I guess, uh, maybe he, maybe he felt like it had some Nashville vibes to it. Uh, that goes right along with your idea about it being, uh, sort of at home on self portrait actually. Yeah. I guess. He recorded that one in Nashville, right? Um, I think some of it was recorded some in Nashville. It. I mean, yeah. who, who even knows? That one was a mess. I've forgotten <laughs> what was recorded one. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, let's not dwell on it anymore. It's fine. It, uh, it, yeah, it's fine. And it brings us into the longest song on the record and a throwback to some of the earlier storytelling exploits that Bob had gone through earlier in his recording career. Specifically on, uh, on John Wesley Harding. Yeah. Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. In my opinion, this song is up there with the sort of weird, like Zen Cohen style of something like Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. Like this, this song has a really weird vibe. Um, I was playing this album for the first time for my girlfriend in in the car uh, the other day and um, when we were in Los Angeles where you drive. And uh, when this song came on, we got about three quarters of the way through it. And um, she said, I can't please turn this off. (laughs) She said, I cannot focus. And I don't blame her because... This is a comp- this is a very maddening song. Like it actually, it is, it is really weird, in in this way that is just kind of like a delicate torture of the senses. <laughs> um, not not to say that it's bad. I I think it's really 
great, uh, but um, not not in a way that like is easy. It, it, this song is like having a bad dream. Yeah, a dream of some sort, certainly. Um, I can't say it's my favorite, my favorite Bob song ever, but I am, I am glad that it exists, and I'm glad that it's, it exists on this record at this, at this time. It, it's, it's sort of like almost, um, it's like an intermission in, in the record, um, uh, or, or something like that, where you know you're, you're going through this, um, this long and, and dark and, and deep stage play, uh, you know, about one man digging, digging his soul out. Um, and now we just reach a, an arbitrary point in the recording and, and, and here's a little like Disney cartoon that we're going to play before, before we get to the second half of things. What, what's cool about this song is that like as Disney-fied it, as it feels and as, as, as fairy tale-ish it, it is, uh, if you did, if you take the time to decipher the lyrics and sort of wrestle with them, it, it does have like kind of a ominous quality, which I think suggests a lot Uh, like great fairy tales do, um, where you have sort of fantasy events occurring, but they, they carry some sort of deeper significance for that matter the Bible, (laughs) like to back to John Wesley Harding, I think it has that in common with it where, um, it has that sort of weird biblical or somewhat religious, like folklore type feel where you have this simple story or deceptively simple story that if you analyze it suggests things that are not for children. And, uh, in this case, things about, gambling about how life is a gamble things about how love is fraught with peril and and people are after each other for various reasons stuff like that hey can you explain to me like what like the story of this song actually like what takes place in this in this song cuz i That's I've, a tall I'm, order. I'm realizing i'm realizing now that like you know i, I can uh, I, I don't know that I could recite the lyrics by heart, but I, I know, I know them if I'm listening to them, uh, you know, from beginning to end, but at the same time, I, I don't, I, I can't say I've ever taken the time to like actually sit down and think like, what, what exactly is the story that's going on here? In my mind, it occupies the same, whatever this genre is, I, I don't, there's no word for name for it, but whatever Rocky raccoon is. Oh, I love Rocky Raccoon. This is like this takes place in that same universe. <laughs> yeah, I see that. It's yeah. like this weird pseudo Western gambling world where there's these sort of folk hero uh, fantasy characters. You have Big Jim, who owns the town's only diamond mine. Right. Yeah, we've got we've got four characters. Right. We've got Big Jim. We've got Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts. The Jack of Hearts is like the odd one out because, at least in my interpretation, uh, such as it is of this song, the Jack of Hearts is like an abstraction. Like he's not a human being. It's like, it's like he's talking about like a pagan God or something or or like the God of chaos or like some pan puck like figure. 
um, the way that he's referred to is like in this very mysterious way where everybody perceives him differently. And I don't know that I could tell you the actual story other than I guess what Lily uh, is tired of, or is it Rosemary is tired of being big Jim's wife, this tycoon and uh, they're gambling and in the background is the Jack of hearts. And he's kind of animating this whole thing that happens where big Jim is, is shot and killed. You have to help me out here. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm scanning through things a little bit here. Right. So, so we begin, the festival was over the boys, the boys were all planning for a fall. The cabaret was quiet except for the drilling in the wall. Um, so there's, it seems like we've got a bank robbery, going on here at the beginning, right? Or right. maybe not a bank robbery, but a, a, you know, a robbery in general, a, a safe robbery or whatever. It is because it's, I think it's the diamond mine belonging to Big Jim. Um, well, I don't know if they're, I don't know that they would be drilling into the wall of the diamond mine because where into would the, they be drilling? Into the bank. Uh, well, but they're drilling into the cabaret, right? I don't know, man. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so so uh, Rosemary is Big Jim's wife. Lily is the woman with whom Big Jim has shacked up. She's a, a, a harlot. She's the Ellen to right. uh, Rosemary's Sarah. Whoa, perhaps. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And Big Jim owns the, the town's only diamond mine. He's like the, the one who, he's the golden goose. Yes, um, but, um, but so Rosemary resents big Jim, I believe because he is being unfaithful because of his infidelity with Lily. Um, See, and- suddenly we thought we were out of the woods with like dive with making this, uh, these songs into some sort of potential autobiographical meltdown, but <laughs> no, even in this like silly song, it's we're, we're, we're dealing with infidelity and paranoia, stealing diamonds. It's high stakes. High stakes indeed. Um, Lily's arms were locked around the man. She dearly loved to touch. She forgot all about the man she couldn't stand who hounded her so much. I've missed you so, she said to him, and he felt that she was sincere, but just beyond the door, he felt jealousy and fear. Just another life in the Jack of Hearts. Yeah, I, I guess I, I don't know. It, it does seem clear that the Jack of Hearts exists in some sort of physical form to some degree at certain points because people are talking about seeing him and, and him standing in the doorway and stuff like that. But I, I don't know if he's like a, like a, an actual person or yeah, like a hallucination or a, or a spirit the or something. The term is overused, uh, to a awful degree. But when you talk about things being Lynchian, it's like, uh, as in David Lynch, like, David Lynch seems to be on some sort of similar tip where like he'll put in his movies, like in Mulholland drive, you get the cowboy, right? Nobody knows what it is, who he is, what it means, if he's real or not exactly. Or, or the guy, the, uh, the, the water and the well guy in season three of twin peaks. Right. I mean, these are kind of like, pseudo real characters this is something that i love about bob dylan is that he he seems to be interested in these types of half real half existent entities and he'll throw them into his songs in love and theft in 2001 you get 
the first track is about Tweedly Dumb and Tweedly D and fucking <laughs> Desolation Row, which is absolutely pocked with characters from literature, uh, Cinderella, Einstein, and pop culture and literature uh, characters that just appear. And sometimes he sort of makes them up. In this case, we have one that's mysterious, the Jack of Hearts. Like, I don't know if there is an answer about what it is, but if you look at what the role of that character is in this song, maybe you can come to your own conclusion. Who's to say what the moral of this story is? Uh, By the end of it, uh, the bank safe has been cleared out and Rosemary has been hanged for the apparent murder of Big Jim. Um, besides that, I don't, I I can't say that I have a whole lot of, uh, whole lot of grasp on what, what is going on here, but it seems like, uh, seems like one bad guy got it. Big Jim, he got it. He's dead. That's good. One good guy got it. Uh, Rosemary, uh, did something that she shouldn't have done, but really she should have done and then got punished for. And Lillian and the Jack of Hearts, whether or not he actually exists, somehow got away from it. And it, it's unclear how morally good uh, or or bad those two characters are supposed to be. Um, right. It's a, it's a total clusterfuck of uh, sort of Bruegel proportions. It's it's a panoramic. Yeah. I can see, I can see that that uh, Bruegel kind of um, big widescreen canvas where all of these different characters are doing all of these different things all at once. We've got the boys drilling through the cabaret wall into the bank safe. We've got mm-hmm. Big Jim standing there in the doorway. We've got the Jack of Hearts playing. Well, no, I guess Rosemary and Lily are the ones playing cards in the back. The Jack of Hearts is doing something. Yeah, you know, you've got all these characters on this big tableau. That's the word I'm looking for. The Jack of Hearts is a, is the Joker. Yes. <laughs> That's a good point. This song is one of these songs that I do think exists in this pantheon of Bob Dylan songs, which in my opinion are what he will perhaps be remembered most for, uh, that's just my take. Songs like this, songs like Desolation Row, songs like uh, Murder Most Foul. Actually. Yeah, Murder Most Foul fits right into this. Tempest. Tempest. Uh, it's all over now, Baby Blue, to some degree. These songs that, uh, well, absolutely, um, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. These songs that have this mythic stature. That It's like he's translating some weird fairy tale you never heard of. Sometimes he's switching out characters for real people. Sometimes it's other people from books that you know or have heard of. Um, That's something that's totally unique to Bob Dylan. And uh, it's cool that you have one of those on this record. Uh, Whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's, I don't know that there's like a specific codified genre in which he's working with those kinds of songs, but they are, uh, they are, they're Bob songs, you know, you could, you could put the lyrics to these kind of songs down on paper and, and not even hear the instrumentation or know what it sounds like and know like, you know, Bob probably wrote that. Who else, who else would do it? Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, another example of one of these. Sure. Yeah. Where, I mean, yeah, if there's any doubt, like why this man won the Nobel prize for literature, it's because of things like this, where it's like, this, this is weird Aesop fables for the 20th and 21st now century. Like who else, who else is doing that? 
Maybe Lana Del Rey, but... Uh, well, Lana Del Rey's having all her songs written for her by uh, Jack Antonoff, so... I don't think jacking off a ton is actually writing those lyrics. <laughs> he does great... Uh, he, he's a sounds guy. I don't really believe that he's, like, the lyric mastermind. Interesting. I have a hard time believing Lana is, but... Maybe it's, uh, maybe, it, maybe Bob is ghostwriting all of her own tracks. Maybe Lana is ghostwriting Bob. Yeah, that's also possible. Let's just go on. <laughs> this song's too much. We could spend, we could spend all, all day trying to decode this one. Um, but after the, yeah, after the intermission, the little, uh, the little, uh, short film fable. Um, we come into the the final the final stretch on this record uh, with three very, um, I think, uh, gentle kind of songs uh, is the way that I would put it. Uh, beginning with "If You See Her, Say Hello." Yeah, this song I think kind of picks up where um, "You're a Big Girl Now" kind of left off in a, in a way, or "Idiot Wind." And, it's sort of like a continuing of that story. Um, perhaps where you have a similar, similar to you're a big girl. Now this kind of like healthy, uh, distance from what was a really passionate relationship. Um, and in a way this song, if, uh, you're a big girl now is like a sequel to just like a woman. This one is perhaps a sequel to uh, Girl from the North Country or, or a variation on that theme of remembering, reminiscing of, of a about a a, lo- a long lost love or a, or a love you once had and um, telling, <laughs> I guess, someone to uh, give them your, your regards. Interestingly, this this song had a pretty prominent lyric change. Um, The line, uh, if you're making love to her, kiss her for the kid who always respected her for doing what she did. That line was removed. And actually, in the original liner notes, um, who I don't have right on hand who wrote them, um, that was, (laughs) he actually referenced that original line in the liner notes and it had to be fixed and amended when they changed that line and it was removed. Um, weird. Yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing this. Yeah. That's in there in the liner notes. Uh, but on Bob com, that, that stanza has been excised. Yeah. I guess in the second pressing of the record, it was totally removed and adjusted in the liner notes. But, um, do do you know who wrote the liner notes? Uh, yeah, it's, um, I did know, and now I have, uh, Pete Hamill. Pete Hamill. So he was actually going to be awarded, uh, or he was nominated. I'm not sure. Was he awarded an Emmy for writing those? I don't know. I mean, I mean a Grammy, a Grammy for writing them. Do they give um, Grammys for Letterness? I believe that's, uh, the case. Huh. In any case, that was changed, and this is another uh, situation like we've we talked about on the uh, Planet Waves episode about Dylan changing a lyric, which happens all the time. 
But um, here's another confirmed case. Uh, and it's it's a song about having a, a, a distance from, from a past relationship and and another, I think, sort of more mature and generous approach to that situation where he's he's saying, I don't, I'm, I haven't blocked her on Instagram. <laughs> I actually want to, you know, extend my, <laughs> extend my uh, regards to her because we um, were intimate and uh, like that doesn't happen that often in your life. Yeah, and this is, it's, uh, again, another one of these more mature songs where Bob is reflecting on the dissolution of some sort of relationship, uh, but not not just shit-talking the person. Not shit-talking uh, and, and not being, like, too emo about it. He's sort of being, like, if you see her, if you see her, right? say hello. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's accepted what what is what has befallen him uh, whether whether it was his own fault or uh, her fault or both their faults or neither uh, you know he's he's reached a level of peace with it you know there there's a sort of a zen feeling to this one yes uh, but yeah i mean in terms of uh, the record itself again like essential tracks versus the less less so um this one is not uh is not not too high up there on my uh, on my personal rankings of of what's going on here. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Had this song appeared on Planet Waves or Street Legal or something, it might uh, seem more pro- like a bigger deal. I, I right. think that this this song is one of those ones where at this point we're maybe getting a little numb to how solid and really good this whole album is. Where there's no bad songs on this record, but this one doesn't shine as bright as as some of the others. It's not like a statement piece. It's like one that you could easily take for granted, but it's important that it's there, I think. Right. Sometimes I feel like the third track on a, on any record is like the was where the record really starts, like the mm. statement of intent. And I think that can be true for the third to last as well, where it's like we're trying to find a way to make the landing. Interesting. I haven't, I haven't thought of that uh, before, but I, I see what you mean. Um, it definitely, it definitely serves a, serves a purpose, I think in the overall kind of uh, dramatic arc of the record, uh, especially uh, leading into these last couple songs here um, to, to wrap things up. Do you have any other things to say about if you see her, say hello? Not much. I'd like to go to Tangier someday, I guess. Yeah, me too. Do you like William Burroughs? Uh, I can't say that I've read William Burroughs. Does he write about uh, Tangier? Well, yeah, he writes about, like, fucking bug men in Tangier, or being fucked by bug men. Yeah, cool. Stuff like that. Beautiful. The next song, Shelter from the Storm... This is a really beautiful song, and um, I'm going to say that this song is the sequel to Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. (laughs) Because of uh, rain imagery. The storm. Yes. But uh, in all seriousness, I do think that that is kind of how I feel about the song, in that 
I think it does have that level of seriousness, but about a romance, about how a romantic bond can be like a respite from the harshness of the world. I think of the lyric in this song, "'Twas in another lifetime, one of toil and blood, when blackness was a virtue, is that right? Hmm? And the road was f- full of and mud. the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. We should mention that this record was made in a very dark time in the United States and in the world in, in history. Very paranoid and violent time. Uh, and uh, I think that that is sort of hanging over this whole record. This song touches on a romantic escape from that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it, it, shelter from the storm. Like there's, there's, there's little to say beyond the, the central image in the song like that, that says it all right there. Um, the, the verses do get progressively more kind of, um, exotic or, or out there, I would say. Another line that I, I genuinely do think that this has something uh, of the same DNA as Hard Rain's Gonna Fall is just the epic quality of it. Right. And and the lines like, um, in a world of steel-eyed death and men fighting to be warm, like that's such a evocative line to me. The same evocative pitch as uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, where you have these biblical scale images people 10,000 talkers and their tongues are all broken. It's definitely the most dramatic imagery on the record. I think it's, it's a, it's a shorter song as far as the songs on this record go, at least, you know, it's only, I don't know, four minutes, four and a half minutes, something like that. But yeah, the, the stanzas and the, um, images and just the feeling I think that he's, that he's going for and conjuring is, yeah, like, uh, like, like you said, it's, it's, uh, it's, not epic in the way that internet people talk about it, uh, but you know, epic in you know the the traditional. I've long since gone back to using epic in the old sense, right? With o- old with an e. Like <laughs> I, I now I, I actually think of why not use the word epic? It's it's sometimes the best way to describe it. Is something. descriptive of a you know of a particular quality as long as you can make it clear that you're not um, you know uh, talking about bacon. Talking exactly. Um. It's also like I'm, I'm realizing now that this might have appeared simple or like appeared obvious to uh, you and, and many of our uh, many of our many listeners um, uh, before this. But he this is uh, this is another song in the same kind of like uh, pattern, um, uh, lyrical pattern that that he has adopted in particular on this record, right, where every stanza ends or, or comes back. Um, to the same, the same line, tangled up in blue, um, right? Shelter from the storm. Shelter from the storm. Simple twist of fate. Um, idiot win to some degree. You know, not every stanza ends with that, but that that definitely comes back around. Not in the same way that a you know verse course verse does. Right. But it's it's the same. You know, the same image, the same uh, last line that resolves the the overall stanza. I, I guess I don't really have a whole lot of insight into that, um, or or what that might mean, but it's. It's an interesting way of structuring these songs, and it's something that I don't feel like, I don't think, at least just kind of thinking off the top of my head, that he has done uh, to the same degree on other records. I'm sure there are there are songs that have this rhyme scheme and stanza structure, but um, not records that have, like, 
you know, half their songs structured in the same exact way from beginning to end. This is just a moment where I have to take a step back and just realize how rich this record is. It really is, especially with the fact that there's basically two versions of it. This is, there's a reason why people think of this record as being one of his true milestone achievements. And um, I don't think that there's a, a song on this album that lacks that kind of gravity. And this is a great example of one that really holds a lot within its four under four minutes. Yeah. 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 The, the first side, I mean, you know, really is sort of a knockout one, two, three punch, uh, in those first four songs, uh, tangled up in blue, simple twist of fate, and then idiot wind. Um, and then, you know, it, it sort of, uh, uh, mellows for a little while, I would say, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't go down in terms of quality, but they aren't songs that really, um, you know, strike you, uh, the way those, those first few do. Um, but here at the end, I think simple twist of fate really, it, it brings it back up. Yeah. It, it's a shorter song. Um, or excuse me, simple twist of fate, uh, shelter from the storm, um, uh, uh, brings it back to these, these ultra high, high highs, um, towards, uh, towards the close of the record. Um, and, uh, and, and sends us out on a high note. I will say that it's important to note that this song has a a verse, which is, it brings it back down to the hard reality where now there's a wall between us. Something has been lost. And he, he talks about how there's, it's not like it used to be. Yeah, now there's a wall between us, something there's been lost. Uh, I took too much for granted. I got my signals crossed just to think that it all began on a long uh, forgotten, or, yeah. Or an on, uneventful, uneventful morning. morning. Yeah, yeah. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Which which really does bring it home. Like, that's, to me, I, I feel like is really, it's easy just to, like, let these things float over your ear, uh, uh, as I've said before uh, about certain songs, but, this this is a thing about if you don't if you're a sort of newbie and you don't know why Bob Dylan is considered as great as as people talk about him and you're kind of like what's so important about this like it's because he does lull you <laughs> at times into this uh, by just being so consistently good on certain records that like you can forget that these songs are very profound some of them um at his best it's like uh if you were to imagine another another artist singing this you would think it was their best song yeah yeah and yeah and it's it's one of you know uh, four or five contenders for best song on one record right um and then we come to the final track uh buckets of rain which as we discussed in the last episode Briefly, um, this was the only song in the sequencing of the album, which at some point was uh, up for debate in in Bob's mind, apparently, where uh, for a time, actually at the last studio session, uh, recording session, the song that was going to potentially take its place was uh, Up To Me, which sort of is a a reprise of Tangled Up in Blue. Musically, it's like the same as Tangled Up in Blue, but has different lyrics. And it would have been a much more of a bummer to end the record on. As it stands, the way that the album turned out is that Buckets of Rain is the closer. 
and it kind of leaves us on a uh, say la vie, um, you can't do, you got to do what you can type of vibe. Like, so it goes. It really is the perfect kind of way to wrap things up as far as I'm concerned. It's like, it's uh, probably the most, the most lyrically like straightforward song on, on the record, uh, on, on a record that's already, you know, been, been written in relatively straightforward and simple language. Um, this is, this is really like as simple as it gets, um, you know, but, but not, not simple in the same way that some of the, uh, early seventies stuff was where it's not particularly insightful. Like he's saying, he's saying a lot here. There's, you know, there, there's, there's a, a large, you know, uh, a well of, of emotion behind this song. Um, but it's being related in, in the plainest, uh, most straightforward possible language. And that combination really, I mean, for me at least, it really, really does it for me. Here's a, a quote from uh, Oliver Traeger, who describes the song as uh, closing an otherwise desperate album with a light reappraisal of commitment. Buckets of Rain is a final Sinatra-like, that's interesting, Sinatra-like. tip of the, <laughs> uh, foreshadowing there. Tip of the hat, sung with the playfulness of an old Piedmont songster. Though Dylan seems like uh, to liken the relationship he describes here with the ferocity of a deluge, he plaintively sings to his love, describing in light, sensual brushstrokes why he still finds her special. And um, again, this is just a reinforcement of how much Dylan shows maturity on this album even though in it's a simple song, it has a lot of quiet profundity to it. I think it, it is the a perfect closer. I agree. That last that last stanza. I mean, it's only I'm looking at it right now. One, two, three, four. Yeah, it's five. It's five stanzas long. You know, the song is you know two and a half, three minutes, something like that. It's very short. Um, but this last this last stanza. Life is sad. Life is a bust. All you can do is do what you must. You do what you must do, and you do it well. I do it for you, honey baby, can't you tell? Honey baby. And and that's so sweet because it's sort of like returning to that uh, down along the cove sort of uh, tonight I'll be staying here with you uh, closing style uh, uh, that Dylan has employed on certain re- of his past records. But... Um, it's all the more powerful because of what's come before on a record with idiot wind on it to end with this, I feel like is uh, very powerful. Apparently <laughs> this song is virtually identical, uh, melodically to the 1972 song seaside shuffle written by English musician, uh, Jonah Lewis, Jonah Louie, Jonah Louie and recorded that year under the band name Terry Dactyl and the Dinosaurs. It's a warm day, the sun is shining. Some of want to say, let's go to Brighton. So we all get up on our friend's car. Hold on tight, we'll do a nine miles per hour. Although the mood and style of the two songs are very different. <laughs> uh, you have one more shot to cancel Bob. Um, he's done it again. He's uh, stolen music and um please bob uh, uh give terry dactyl and and the dinosaur was it terry dactyl and the dinosaurs 
That's right. Pterodactyl and the dinosaurs. If uh, Columbia Records and Bob Dylan, if you haven't given them a fat check, I'll hunt you down. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great song. It's uh, it's a beauty. Uh, it, one of the ones that it, it has stuck with me uh, through my life up until now and will stick with me, I think, uh, until the very end, whenever that might be. Um, just always, always does it for me. Yeah. And you never know when you might die. And this is an album that <laughs> goes there. Certainly. So uh, with that, that's the end of... Blood on the tracks, blood on the songs, blood on the tracks. You know, I'm just, I'm just realizing that there's like a double entendre in the title. Like somehow I never, I blood never realized that it was tracks as in mute. Like I always thought it was like, had it, it was just like a train. Um, yeah. Tr- you know, that's the, the autism brain. It just goes straight to trains. <laughs> well, it's also the, uh, chugle brain because trains are a classic sort of chuglin, uh, type of song, uh, Subject. That's true. There's a reason why, and we'll get to this later when we t- discuss Dylan and the Dead, late, much further down the road, down the tracks. But um, Bob and um, and and Jerry uh, Jerry Garcia, who just had his 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 birthday, they were very close. Actually, closer than I think a lot of people realize. They're good friends, and. Uh, Bob has actually actually a very touching eulogy, which I think I'll save for that episode. But um, something that I find similar and interesting in both of their work, uh, respectively, both of them were willing to take the audience very far out lyrically or musically, in the case of The, the Dead, and then come back and, and, and expecting the audience to take that in stride. And I think that speaks to a sort of a certain generosity of spirit as a musician, which is one of the reasons we love Bob. We love Jerry and, um, we love this record. I think to that same idea, that same note, Pete Hamill in the liner notes, is a good message for us here to maybe conclude on in the same kind of idea that you're just expressing there. Uh, Pete Hamill writes totalitarian art tells us what to feel Dylan's art feels and invites us to join him. That's great. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you, Pete Hamill. We've, I think we've, we've done justice to, uh, to blood on the tracks. We might need to uh, split this up into more than two. We'll do it in two because we respect our listeners enough that we'll, we'll take them right to the edge of their patience and uh, hopefully they uh, are smart. <laughs> They're smart <laughs> to uh, join us for the ride. Um, this has been a, a pleasure. I, I mean, I feel like this is a real turning point in, in the Bob career arc. And uh, after this, we are really starting to hit the heavy stuff as far as what occurs in, in the world, in Bob's career and in the music. We really are about to, I mean, I guess technically, you know, there's one more sort of hall of fame record. Uh, if, if that's how you want to think of, uh, the basement tapes. Right. I guess we have to go back in time. We're going to have to go back to 1967, which hopefully will elucidate some interesting finer points of the Bob 
and the band mythos, but um, also act as a sort of intermission if you want to skip that uh, episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't don't bother listening to that. Uh, wait until uh, we pick up with Desire, where we cancel Bob for saying the N word. Uh, I, yes, I, I actually believe that a lot of people will just jump at the chance to skip one of these episodes, but, uh, <laughs> so we probably shouldn't say that, but yeah, uh, Bob's getting canceled on desire. And, um, after that shit really starts to get rough and rowdy. This has been Jokerman and, uh, thank you, dear listener for getting tangled up in blue.